have your Bible as we turn to this morning's sermon text, and I hope you have one. We can turn to Exodus chapter 25 as we continue our ongoing series through a second book of God's Word, and we come to the first of a few sermons on the tabernacle, which we're going to see in coming weeks and months. It does dominate much of the end of this story, but what we want to look at today is chapter 25, 26, and 27. So to get us going, let me just read the first 22 verses. That gives you a good idea for all of the instructions and detailed directions that make up our passage. And then I'll pray for our time and and we'll begin together. So here now as God speaks to us uh, once again through his word. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you will receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tan ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, Onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, and inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it molding of gold all around it. And you shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them on its four feet, and two rings on the one side of it, and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. And you shall put poles into the rings on the sides of the ark, to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark... The testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them, and on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall be spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be, and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. And there I will meet with you from above the mercy seat and from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I will give you. In commandment for the people of Israel. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you that you have spoken to us uh, through your covenant word, and we ask that you would draw near to us by your word and spirit this day. For we know the deepest longing of our heart is to see the King in his beauty, to long to worship you in the presence of your eternal glory. And so give us but a glimpse and a sense of that uh, this day as we want to honor you as we want to hear from you. May the Spirit open our hearts to 
receive this word, our eyes to see this word, our ears to hear this word, that we might receive it with meekness and faithfulness. Help me to preach as you say I must with clarity and courage and compassion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're at the stage with Boston Charles, our three-year-old, where Emily and I find ourselves grinning across the way numerous times during the week because of words he just uses and sentences that he constructs together. It doesn't seem too terribly unusual that I'll come home in the afternoon and one of the other children will say, Dad, you have to hear what Boston said today, or Boston, say this again to Daddy. And when we're driving around in the car, Boston's taking it upon himself to be something of a tour guide to the rest of the family. You know, he'll stare out the window and say, look, and remark about this tree or, or that animal or whatever else he, he thinks he sees. And it's not unusual after a long day in particular when we're all in the van together and, and we turn into uh, our neighborhood that Boston will uh, shout out this shout of joy, but certainly a relief as well. He simply says, there's home. And he knows, like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, that there's no place like home. And I tell you that because we come to God's home, the tabernacle, and his experience and leadership, relationship with even the people of Israel. And it's a text that's going to tell us that home isn't precisely where the heart is. Really, home is where God is. And we're meant to understand something about God's home in this text today. Because even speaking of home, I wonder if you in here today would consider yourself a nester or perhaps a wanderer. You know, a wandering person tends to be the kind of person always seeking some new place to be, some new place to travel to, just new things in life. And uh, you might be instead a nester, someone who enjoys being at home, enjoys homemaking, you know, sitting on the couch for hours on end or table for minutes and hours on end after a, a meal. And, and both of those hearts are, are always longing for home, aren't they? Uh, you might not be a wanderer or a nester. You might be some sort of a combination uh, between the two. Because, of course, a wanderer is trying to find home. A nester is trying to create home. And isn't it fundamentally expressing to us this reality that ever since Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden, that humanity is looking for home? That every heart, whether or not they realize it or not, is restless until they find their rest in God? And so we come then today to God's home among the people of Israel. We saw last week, if you were with us, God confirmed His covenant in Exodus chapter 24 with Israel. Moses read the book of the covenant in the hearing of all of God's people. Uh, they extended this covenant vow. They said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And, then, and Moses uh, took the blood of the covenant and he sprinkled it on the altar, representing God's presence. He sprinkled it on the people, representing the sealing, the cutting of this covenant relationship uh, with his people, and so now with the covenant confirmed, with the people covenantally consecrated, it's time for God to come and, and, and be with his people. And so the tabernacle is altogether important in the book of Exodus. Thirteen of the last sixteen chapters are all about either how you should build a tabernacle or how Moses went about building the tabernacle, signaling for us, of course, that the tabernacle is really important. And we're going to look at it 
over the course of this week, perhaps the next two Sundays as well, these commands regarding the tabernacle. And whenever you come to a text like this, students in, in Scripture, I hope to show you today, it really is quite simple in terms of the application of, of these truths and these even old model building and house building plans that, that God had given to Israel because they're always pointing us to a particular spiritual reality and ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So this week we'll consider what belongs in the tabernacle. Lord willing, next week we'll consider from the subsequent chapters who belongs in the tabernacle. There's three simple things I want you to see along the way today. First, the form of the tabernacle. Secondly, the furniture in the tabernacle. And at the end, we'll meditate on the fellowship with the tabernacle. So first, the form of the tabernacle. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 25. The Lord says to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, that they take me... They take for me a contribution. And you see what is to be contributed in that original love offering and the nation of Israel's experience. All of this beautiful material, precious metals, wonderful stones. And it all has a point. Look at verse 8 and 9. Moses will take the contributions and this is what he's going to use them for. Let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture. So shall you make it. Now, kids, you can circle that word there, pattern. Because almost every time uh, this word is, is used in God's word, it's speaking about a copy of an already existing reality. Okay? So, copy of an already existing reality. That's what the tabernacle is. So, we have to ask the question, it's a copy of what already existing reality? Well, we don't have to guess, do we? Flip over to Hebrews chapter 8. Keep your finger in Exodus 25. We'll return there in just a second. Hebrews chapter 8. The author to the Hebrews, if you know this book, is at pains over and over to prove that Jesus is better. He's supreme when compared to Moses, the priesthood, even the tabernacle itself. And so in chapter 8, verse 5, look at what he says regarding even this tabernacle that's commanded in the book of Exodus. It serves as a copy in shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that being the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Flip over to verse 24 of chapter 9 in Hebrews, using the same kind of language regarding Christ's fulfillment of these things. It says, Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands. So think of the tabernacle. Not to the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. But he's entered into heaven itself. So what is the tabernacle meant to be in Israel's experience, but a copy of their heavenly home? Now before them, there as they're wandering about in the wilderness, of course eventually coming to the promised land, they had this reminder of God's dwelling place, which thus meant heaven has now come to earth. And so everything you see in the tabernacle is meant to communicate to us something of our, our heavenly home, but not just our heavenly home. Also, you have these kind of echoes of Eden that you get throughout the tabernacle narrative as well. So, for example, if you glance down at verse 2 and 7, chapter 25, it begins with the contributions of gold. It ends with the contributions of onyx. Genesis chapter 2, verse 12, as it's describing Eden, begins with gold. It ends with onyx. 
That's, of course, at the end of chapter 25, we'll see in just a minute that there's this golden lampstand that's supposed to be there almost in the center of the tabernacle mount, if you will. And it looks like a tree is the whole point. That's reminding us that in another dwelling place of God, the temple and the tabernacle, the garden of Eden, it was there that God dwelt with man and there in the center was what? But a tree, the tree of life. And significantly in the Genesis narrative, when God's creating all things, seven times we're told, God said. Seven times in the tabernacle narrative we're told, and the Lord said to Moses. So this is the form of the tabernacle. It's, it's pointing us to our home in heaven. It's also pointing us back to these echoes of Eden. But we'll spend most of our time this morning on the furniture. The furniture in the tabernacle. I wonder if any of you have been to a furniture store recently. I'm sure most of you in the room remember times, perhaps, of walking into a furniture store, and surely your feet were only a few inches into the store before a salesperson came up to you, and subsequently was something of a maybe unwanted tour guide through the entire facility, making sure that you knew all of the good deals and everything that you could potentially want for your home. And what the Spirit's now doing through the Word is He's functioning in a reverent sense, in a divine way, as a tour guide through God's furniture that belongs in God's place. Because the overwhelming majority of our text today is actually situated and focused on furniture. And the first piece is the most important. The Ark of the Covenant, notice verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. A cubit and a half its breadth. And a cubit and a half its height. My kids, I bet you don't know how big a cubit is or how long a cubit and a half is. All you need to know is that these dimensions were the ordinary dimensions in the ancient world for a footstool. Uh, the ark was to function as something of a, a footstool in God's tabernacle. And of course, it was in the ancient world where a king, he judged, he, he ruled from his throne while his feet were on the footstool. And so the Ark of the Covenant is communicating to us among its many things, but centrally it's communicating to us God's rule with His people. It's why Isaiah chapter 66 verse 1 can speak of heaven as God's place of rule and the earth as its footstool. That's why it's significant then what God calls Moses to put in the Ark. Look at verse 16, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. If you skip down to verse 21, at the end he says the same thing. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you, which is nothing other than his book of the covenant, his ten commandments of the covenant, which is why this piece of furniture is often even referred to as the ark of the covenant. Because how does God rule his people? But through his word. And therefore his word belongs in this footstool representing his rule. And so parents, I hope that it's true in your family's life that you bring them on the Lord's day, your children, everyone in your household, to come and hear and receive from God's word because it's only through his word and spirit working through his word that you know how God means to rule over you. And students, I hope it's not only on Sunday that you hear and receive God's word. That you hear it and receive it and read it and meditate on it daily that you might know what God requires of you. How He rules over you. It's not just about rule though. It's also about redemption. You see what we're told in verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. And then what we're also told is that notice verse 18. You're to hammer some things together on this mercy seat. Namely, cherubim, which is what verse 19 and 20 say. 
So there on this golden ark, so they go this golden top, which is called the mercy seat, also known as the atonement cover. And on top of it were to be these two cherubim, children that's just heavenly creatures. And their wings pointing inward, which of course, again, is underscoring God's rule. Because the Bible often talks about God ruling forth from heaven from between the cherubim. But it's also about redemption because it was on the day of atonement. High priests would enter into the holy of holies of the tabernacle. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And he was going to sprinkle blood. He had to. Sprinkle blood on top of the mercy seat, this atonement cover, symbolizing that it's only through the blood sprinkled there in the Holy of Holies, behind the veil, that Israel's sins might be forgiven. So this first piece of furniture, all it's telling us is home is where we live under God's rule and redemption. And who is our ruler and redeemer but the Lord Jesus Christ, who has shed His blood, going behind the veil into the Holy of Holies, the book of Hebrews says that we might be forgiven of our sin. Second piece of furniture you'll notice is the table for bread, verse 23 through 30. If you just kind of pay attention to the dimensions there, you, you might notice it's, it's a rectangle. Dimensionally speaking, it's, it's almost the same kind of proportions as the tabernacle is, it's just a smaller version of it. And you'll see what the purpose for Israel's religious life was for this table, for the bread of presence. Look at verse 30, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me, regularly. And so, students, when you hear words like regularly, maybe you should ask the question, well, how regularly should bread be set there? Well, well, we're told in Leviticus 24 that it was weekly. A priest would bring in 12 new loaves of bread. They would stack them there on the table where they would remain all week. Two columns of six loaves of bread. Of course, 12 representing all of God's people. Of course, 12 representing all the time. Reminding Israel that God's presence with them meant He was providing all the time for all of His people. Which isn't that exactly what God has already been doing in the book of Exodus. You know, there's this theme of bread that's kind of woven throughout the book. And, and kids, you might remember not too far back into the story that God miraculously was providing daily, wasn't He? This wonder bread from heaven called manna. And Jesus Himself takes up the nature of this heavenly bread and says, I am the bread from heaven, that it's Jesus Christ who is the bread of life. He is the one through whom God provides for all of His people, all of the time. And I wonder if you might be in a place even this day where you might be forgetting that He's providing for you through His Son. Not just He's providing for you, He's providing for you should you know Jesus Christ all the time according to His Son. So this is telling us, isn't it, not just the bread of presence belonged on the table. It's also telling us something of our home in heaven, that, that our home is where we eat in God's presence, the blessing of His provision. Thirdly, the chapter ends with the next piece of furniture, which is the golden lampstand. You see verse 31, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold, and the lampstand shall be hammered work. Skipping down to verse 32, Six branches going out of its side, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, three branches of the lampstand going out the other side of it. So students, you can surely picture it, this is beautiful and brilliant lampstand that's there in the tabernacle, three shoots going out each way, again, kind of symbolizing a tree, and it's to always be burning. If you just flip the page over to the end of chapter 27, you'll see Moses hears instructions related to the oil for the lamp, the oil that's always to be provided so that morning 
to evening, we're told there in verse 21 of chapter 27. It will burn before the Lord and be a statute forever, this oil for an always burning lamp. Now, those of you that have had the experience of traveling enough on airplanes, I wonder if you have a preference for where you sit. I've always been one that wants the window seat. I just like to be left alone, I guess, there on the corner of the plane. And I like it in part just not because you can kind of be left alone there in certain ways. Uh, but also, you just love to look outside, don't you? I mean, you're not afforded these kind of views very often. And you don't want to miss the majesty that belongs to looking out of a window and seeing just God's creation from a perspective that's so much higher than you ever would. And I was on a long flight a number of years ago from Dubai to DFW Direct. I position myself by my window seat. And I tend to not be someone that can ever sleep on planes. No matter what I try to do or receive to do, I can't sleep on planes. And So we were flying overnight, and it was in the wee hours of the morning. The course of that plane ride was over kind of the northern part of the Atlantic, well into the northeast area of Canada. And so if you've ever made that kind of trek before, you know in the wee hours of the night, you look out the window, and there's not much to see out the window. You know, it just seems to be darkness Everywhere you look. But if you've also done that before, you might know that actually if you look hard enough, you can almost always see some piece of light. Sometimes it's lights on a ship cruising there below. That's lights of a lighthouse off on the coast. It might be this kind of random home in the middle of the countryside, lit up in the middle of the night. Or perhaps it's a city or a town off in the distance. You can always find light amidst the darkness. And even for Israel, there in the tabernacle before them was the good news. They could always find light in the darkness of their experience. No matter their sorrow, no matter the enemies that surrounded them, no matter the hardship of their wilderness wandering, it was the reminder that God's light is always shining in their darkness. And Jesus, of course, says, I am the light. That's what he means when he says in John's gospel, I am the light of the world. Whoever will walk in me will not walk in darkness. Whoever knows me knows what it means to walk in the light. And so it's telling us this piece of furniture also as well as at home. as where we live in God's light. And if you just flip over the page of chapter 26. You see a long chapter uh, full of all kinds of very detailed destruction, instruction on the tabernacle and how it's to be built. And we don't need to pay attention to too much of it. You just need to know it's 45 feet long, 15 feet high, 15 feet wide. Uh, You want to pay attention to the ornament that belonged to the tabernacle. It was to stick out in a royal way. The beauty and brilliance of these colors, the construction itself would signal that this is the place for majesty and royalty. But it wasn't just the tabernacle itself that God wanted to command Moses to build. There's also an entire courtyard. You see that in the middle part of chapter 27, verse 9 through 19. That it's not just a preparation of the tabernacle, it's this courtyard that's to go around the tabernacle as well. And so you need to know that there's something of a procession that belonged to the tabernacle life of Israel. Because if you were a lay person in Israel, you were allowed into the courtyard. But only the priests and Levites, they were allowed into the holy place where the golden lampstand was, the table was, 
But of course, only one person was allowed into the Holy of Holies, namely the high priest, and him only once a year on the Day of Atonement. So therefore, understanding that kind of procession, look at the final piece of furniture we're meant to see at the beginning of chapter 27. First thing that would have confronted an ordinary Israelite coming into the courtyard was the bronze altar. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square in its height, three cubits. Of course, it's at this altar that blood must be spilled. Sacrifices must be offered. Reminding Israel and us that no one can come into God's presence unless the blood of another was spilled in their place. Of course, isn't that pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself who spilled His blood in the place of sinners like you and me? That even our entrance into God's household, we only come into His home through the blood of another. So, of course, you see all this furniture as visually portraying before them in a way that surely they didn't understand fully, but they would understand in time and the nature of experience is pointing forward to the Messiah and the Redeemer who is going to come. Which is why when Jesus arrives in John chapter 1, we're told about His life and ministry. John writes, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And some of you might know that that verb there for dwelt, you, you can't just translate it as tabernacle. That He became flesh and tabernacled among us. That everything in here is pointing to His rule and redemption. Everything in here, of course, likewise, is pointing to His promise of provision, living in His light, cleansing through His blood. The tabernacle is pointing forward to God's Son, who is Emmanuel, God with us, that He might dwell with us. That's the furniture in the tabernacle. Now what about the fellowship with the tabernacle? Some of you are old enough to know that Ronald Reagan, when he was president, was sometimes referred to as the great communicator. He was said to have an unusual ability in making speeches, perhaps even speeches that were just right for the moment. And one of his more well-known speeches came in January of 1986. It was on January 28th of that year that the spatial challenger exploded in the sky. Some of you might remember killing all seven astronauts on board and and President Reagan had planned that evening to address the country already, giving his State of the Union address, but he chucked that aside, knowing the tragedy of the moment, and, and preached and spoke a short message of comfort, uh, of grief for those that were mourning. And he ended that short speech by quoting this old World War II poet. And Reagan essentially said, they, they have now left earth, quote, to touch the face of God. And it gets back to where we began, the longing within humanity for a home, the longing to be with the Lord, whether or not you realize it. Your heart is restless until it can find rest in God's resting place. And so you might think in the nation of Israel's experience that, that now the tabernacle has come. We're going to see by the end of the book that God's glory cloud of Shekinah, power and majesty, descends on the tabernacle. Finally. He's with us in His fullness. Well, yes, he's, he's with Israel for sure, but this is an imperfect reality. After all, it is a pattern, isn't it? It's but a shadow and a copy. Because you actually see its imperfection in certain ways when you recognize it preaches two things to us. And I want to close this morning by thinking of both of these things. 
First, the tabernacle preached a message of separation. Think of the procession. Everyone could come into the courtyard, only the priests and Levites into the holy place, and only the high priest into the holy of holies. Now, if you just glance your eyes through the first 14 verses or so of chapter 26, what you'll see, and kids, you can circle this off because it's all over the place. I think it's like 24 times in 13 verses. The word curtain shows up. And I don't know what purpose your home has for curtains, but we certainly know some of the purposes for curtains would include separation, right? Separating the light, separating our home from people looking in. And these curtains that were now to mark off the tabernacle life and experience were also there to separate things. And look what's at the curtain, or on the curtain, I should say, that hangs there in the tabernacle, separating the holy place from the holy of holies. Look at verse 31 of chapter 26. Moses hears God command, You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. That's fascinating if you just read through chapter 26 later on today. You'll see that it's only that curtain that gets cherubim on it. Cherubim don't belong on the curtain separating the courtyard from the holy place, but cherubim belong on the curtain separating the holy place from the holy of holies. Think of another echo of Eden. When was the last time you can think about cherubim separating people from God's presence? But outside the Garden of Eden, saying because of your sin, you can't come back in. Here are cherubim. Because of your sin, you can't come in. Only the high priest gets to come in here. And he only gets to do it once. Such as the glory and the power and even the awesome dread that belongs to God's presence. I've heard it said before that these curtains with cherubim are something like God's great keep out sign. Because of your sin, you can't come in. Uh, the tabernacle is preaching that message of separation to you this morning. Because of your sin, you, you can't come into God's presence. Because of your sin, you, you can't enter into His heavenly home. But it preaches a second thing, doesn't it? Not just a message of separation, a message of salvation. Jesus Christ came to tabernacle among His people. He goes to the cross at Calvary. And remember, He's dying there. Shedding his blood, spilling it once and for all this perfect, precious blood that alone can fully and finally forgive sin. He yields up his spirit. He cries out, is finished. So you have to think for many centuries in Israel's life, when they would come into that tabernacle complex of sorts, maybe parents coming in with their children. And certainly if their children were anything like my children and probably your children would be, they might tug on the sleeve and the robe and say, hey, can we go in there? No, you can't go in there. Of course, you get to the Holy of Holies and the priests and the Levites are talking with each other and thinking, what would it be to go in there and to the Holy of Holies? But we can't go in there. And even the high priest who's allowed into the Holy of Holies might think to himself, what would it be like to go in there every single day? But I get to go in there only once a year. And then as Jesus yields up his spirit, what happens to that curtain with cherubim? It's torn in two. Saying that everyone, through faith in Jesus Christ, those who've been separated from God's presence are now welcomed in because of what he has done. Spilling his blood in your place. 
So maybe today you've asked the question of, I wonder if I can go in there. And the good news is that you can. And you can because Jesus Christ is our tabernacle. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would help us in the midst of our failings and weaknesses to remember this good news that Christ has died in our place. He has now welcomed us into your presence. That we even now as your church are being built up into a dwelling place for your presence through Jesus Christ with confidence, assurance of access to your mercy seat in heaven. So help us to come confidently. Help us to come to receive the comfort of your nearness. We might be strengthened to glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.